Section 6 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 3, Persia and the Meshed Pilgrim Road, Part 2. Three miles of mostly rideable gravel bring me to another village, and to four miles of horrible mud in getting through its fields and over its ditches. A raw wind is blowing, and squally gusts of snow come scudding across the dreary prospect, a prospect flanked on the north by cold, gray hills, and the face of nature generally furrowed with tell-tale lines of winter's partial dissolution. While trundling through this village, both myself and bicycle plastered to a well-nigh unrecognizable state with mud, feeling pretty thoroughly disgusted with the weather and the roads, an ancient-looking Persian emerges from a little stall with a last season's muskmelon in hand, and advancing towards me shouts, Hoy! loud enough to wake the seven sleepers. Shouting, Hoy! at a person close enough to hear a whisper, as loud as though he were a good mile away, is a peculiarity of the Persians that has often initiated travelers to the pitch of wishing they had a hot potato and the dexterity to throw it down their throats. And in my present unenviable condition, and its accompanying unenviable frame of mind, I don't mind admitting that I mentally relegated this vociferous melon vendor to a place where infinitely worse than hot potatoes would overtake him. Knowing full well that a halt of a single minute would mean a general mustering of the population, and an importuning rabble following me through the unridable mud, I ignore the old melon man's foghorn efforts to arrest my onward progress but he proves a most vociferous and persistent specimen of his class nothing less than a dozen exclamation points can give the faintest idea of how a hollering persian shouts hoy seven miles over very good gravel and my road leads into the labyrinth of muddy lanes ditches and water-holes tumble-down walls and disorderly looking cemeteries of the suburbs of semnoon in traversing the cemeteries, one cannot help observing how many of the graves are caved in by the rains and the skeletons exposed to view. Mohammedans bury their dead very shallow, usually about two feet, and in Persia the grave is often arched over with soft mud bricks. These weaken and dissolve after the rains and snows of winter, and a cemetery becomes a place of exposed remains and of pitfalls where an unwary step on what appears solid ground may precipitate one into the undesirable company of a skeleton. By the time Semnoon is reached, the day has grown warmer, and the sun favors the cold, dismal earth with a few genial rays so that the blooming orchards of peach and pomegranate that brighten and enliven the environs of the city and which suggest semnoon to be a mild and sheltered spot seem quite natural notwithstanding the patches of snow lying about the crowds seem remarkably well behaved as i trundle through the bazaar toward the telegraph office the total absence of missiles being particularly noticeable the telegraph g proves to be a sensible enlightened fellow and quite matter-of-fact in his manner for a persian 
apart from his duty to the governor and a few bigwigs of the place whom it would be unpardonable in him to overlook or ignore he saves me as much as possible from the worrying of the people prince anushirvan mirza governor of semnoon damgan and Shahrud, is the shah's cousin son of bahman mirza uncle of the shah and formerly governor of tabriz Baman Mirza was discovered intriguing with the Russians, and, fearing the vengeance of the Shah, fled from the country, seeking an asylum among the Russians. He is now, if not dead, a refugee somewhere in the Caucasus. But the father's disgrace did not prejudice the Shah against his sons, and Prince Anushirvan and his sons are honored and trusted by the Shah as men capable of distinguishing between the friends and enemies of their country, and of conducting themselves accordingly. The governor's palace is not far from the north gate of the city, and after the customary round of tea and kalyans, without which nothing can be done in Persia, he walks outside with his staff to a piece of good road in order to see me ride to the best advantage. As a specimen of Persian extravagance, to use a very mild term, it may be as well to mention here as anywhere that the governor telegraphed to his son, acting as his deputy at Shahrud, that he had ridden some miles with me out of the city. During the evening, one of the governor's sons, Prince Sultan Majid Mirza, comes in with a few leading dignitaries to spend an hour in chatting and smoking. This young prince proves one of the most intelligent Persians I have met in the country. Besides being very well informed for a provincial Persian, he is bright and quick-witted. Among the gentlemen he brings in with him is a man who has made the pilgrimage to Mecca via Iskenden, Alexandria, and Suez, and has, consequently, seen and ridden on the Egyptian railway. The prince had heard his description of this railway, and the light thus gained has not unnaturally had the effect of whetting his curiosity to hear more of the marvelous iron roads of Frangistan, and after exhausting the usual program of queries concerning cycling, the conversation leads, by easy transition, to the subject of railways. Do they have railways in Yengi Donya? questioned the prince. Plenty of railways, plenty of everything, I reply like the one at iskenderi and stamboul better and bigger than both these put together a hundred times over the iskenderi railroad is very small nods and smiles of acquiescence from prince and listeners follow this statement which show plainly enough that they consider it a pardonable lie such as every persian present habitually indulges in himself and thinks favorably of in others Railroads are good things, and Ferengis are very clever people, says the prince, renewing the subject and handing me a handful of salted melon seeds from his pocket, meanwhile nibbling some himself. Yes, why don't you have railroads in Iran? You could then go to Tehran in a few hours. The prince smiles amusingly at the thought, as though conscious of railroads in Persia being a dream altogether too bright to ever materialize and shaking his head says pool nice we have no money the english have money and would build a railroad but mula nice baron ryder you know baron ryder mula nice not pool nice the prince smiles and signifies that he is well enough aware where the trouble lies 
but we talk no more of railroads for he and his father and brothers belong to the party of progress in persia and the triumph of priests and old women over the shah and baron reuter's railway is to them a distressful and humiliating subject the late lamented o'donovan of to the merv fame used to make simnoon his headquarters while dodging about on the frontier and was personally known to everyone present Semnoon is celebrated for the excellence of its Kalyan tobacco, and O'Donovan was celebrated in Semnoon for his love of the Kalyan. This evening, in talking about him, the telegraph G says that when he pulled at the Kalyan, he pulled with such tremendous eagerness that the flames leaped up to the ceiling, and after three whiffs you couldn't see anybody in the room for smoke. The telegraph G's Farash builds a good wood fire in a cozy little room adjoining the office. Blankets are provided, an ample supper is sent around from the Telegraph G's house, and what is still better appreciated, I am left to enjoy these substantial comforts without so much as a single spectator coming to see me feed. No one comes near me till morning. The morning breaks cold and clear, and for some six miles the road is very fair wheeling. After this comes a gradual inclination toward a jutting spur of hills the following twenty miles being the toughest kind of a trundle through mud, snowfields, and drifts. This is a most uninviting piece of country to wheel through, and it would seem but little less so to traverse at this time of the year with a caravan of camels, two or three of these animals being found exhausted by the roadside, and a couple of shavadars encountered in one place skinning another while its companion is lying helplessly alongside watching the operation and waiting its own turn to the same treatment. It is said to be characteristic of a camel that, when he once slips down, cold and weary in the mud, he never again tries to regain his feet. The weather looks squally and unsettled, and I push ahead as rapidly as the condition of the ground will permit, fearing a snowstorm in the hills. About 3 p.m., I arrive at the caravanserai of Ahwan, a dreary, inhospitable place in an equally dreary, inhospitable country. Situated in a region of wind and snow and bleak open hills, the wretched serai of Ahwan is remembered as a place where the keen, raw wind seems to come whistling gleefully and yet maliciously from all points of the compass, seemingly centering in the caravanserai itself. These winds render any attempt to kindle a fire a dismal failure, resulting in smoke and watery eyes. Here I manage to obtain half-frozen bread and a few eggs. After an ineffectual attempt to roast the latter and thaw out the former, I am forced to eat them both as they are, and although the sun looks ominously low and it is six farsakhs to the next place, I conclude to chance anything rather than risk being snowbound at Awan. Fortunately, after about five miles more of snow, the trail emerges upon a gravelly plain with a gradual descent from the hills, just crossed to the lower level of the Damgan Plain. The favorable gradient and the smooth trails induce a smart pace, and as the waning daylight merges into the soft, chastened light of a cloud-veiled moon, I alight at the village and serai of Gusheh. There are at the caravanserai a number of travelers, among them a mujik of the Don, traveling to Tehran and beyond in company with a Tabriz Turk. The Russian peasant at once invites me to his menzel in the caravanserai, 
and although he looks, if anything, a trifle more indifferent about personal cleanliness than either a Turkish or Persian peasant, I have no alternative but to accept his well-meant invitation. At this juncture, when one's thoughts are swayed and influenced by an appetite that the cold day and hard tugging through the hills have rendered well-nigh uncontrollable, a prosperous-looking Persian traveler, returning from a pilgrimage to Meshed, with his wives, family, and servitors, quite a respectable-sized retinue, emerges from the seclusion of his quarters to see the bicycle. Of course, he requests me to ride, sending his link boys to bring out all the farnooses to supplement fair Luna's coy and inefficient beams. And after the performance, the old gentleman promises to send me round a dish of pilau. In due time, the promised pilau comes round, an ample dish sufficient to satisfy even my present ravenous appetite. And after this, he sends round tea, lump sugar, and a samovar. The moujik turns to and gets up steam in the samovar, and over tiny glasses of the cheering but non-intoxicating beverage, he sings a Russian regimental song, and his comrade, the Tabriz Turk, warbles the praises of Stamboul. But although they make merry over the tea, methinks both of them would have made still merrier over something stronger. For the moujik puts in a good share of the evening talking about vodka consumed at Sharud, and smacking his lips at the retrospective bliss embodied in its consumption, while the Turk from Tabriz catches me aside and asks mysteriously if my package contains an Iraqi, Arak, like the Awan caravanserai, the one at Gusha seems to draw the chilly winds from every direction, and I arise from a rude couch made wretchedly uncomfortable by draughts, the attacks of insects, and the persistent determination of a horse to use my prostrate form as a rest for his nose-bag to find myself the possessor of a sore throat. Persian travelers are generally up and off before daylight, and a clicking noise, Persian curry-combs, are covered with small rings that make a rattling noise when being used, of currying horses begins as early as three o'clock. The attendance of the old gentleman of happy remembrance in connection with last night's pilau and samovar have been busy for two hours, and his taktroan and karjuez are already occupied and starting, when, by the first gleam of awakening dawn, I mount and wheel eastward. A shallow, unbridged stream obstructs my path, but a short distance from Gusha, and I manage to get in knee-deep in trying to avoid the necessity of removing my footgear. I then wander several miles off my road to an outlying village. This happy commencement of a new day is followed by a variable road leading sometimes over stony or graveling plains where the wheeling varies through all the stages of goodness, badness, and indifference, and sometimes through grazing grounds and cultivable areas adjoining the villages. Scattered about the grazing and arable country are now small towers of refuge, loopholed for defense, to which riots working in the fields, or shepherds tending their flocks, fled for safety in case of a sudden appearance of Turkoman marauders. But a few years ago, men hereabouts went to plough, sow, or reap with a gun slung at their backs, and a few of them reaching the shelter of one of these compact little mud towers were able, through the loopholes, to keep the Turkomans at bay until relief arrived. The towers are of circular form, about twenty feet high and fifteen in diameter. The entrance is a very small doorway, 
often a mere hole to crawl into, and steps inside lead to the summit. Some are roofed in near the top, others are mere circular walls of mud. On grazing grounds a lower wall often encompasses the tower, fencing in a larger space that formed a corral for the flocks. The shepherds then, while defending themselves, were also defending their sheep or goats. In the more exposed localities, these little towers of refuge are often but a couple of hundred yards apart, thickly dotting the country in all directions. While watch-towers are seen perched on peaks and points of vantage, the whole scene speaking eloquently of the extraordinary precautions these poor people were compelled to adopt for the preservation of their lives and property. No wonder Russian intrigue makes headway in Khorasan and all along the Turco-Inan-Perso frontier, for the people can scarcely help being favorably impressed by the stoppage of Turkoman deviltry in their midst and the wholesale liberation of Persian slaves. The town of Damgan is reached near noon, and I am not a little gratified to learn that the telegraph G has been notified of my approach, and has stationed his farash at the entrance to the bazaar, so that I should have no trouble in finding the office. This augurs well for the reception awaiting me there, and I am accordingly not surprised to find him an exceptionally affable youth, proud of a word or two of English he had somehow acquired, and of his knowledge of how to properly entertain a Ferengi. This latter qualification assumes the eminently practical and, it is needless to add, acceptable form of a roast chicken, a heaping dish of pilau, and sundry other substantial proofs of anticipatory preparations. The telegraph G takes great pleasure in seeing roast chicken mysteriously disappear, and the dish of pilau gradually diminish in size. In fact, the unconcealed satisfaction afforded by these savory testimonials of his cook's abilities give him such pleasure that he urges me to remain his guest for a day and rest up. But Shahrood is only forty miles away, and here I shall have the pleasure of meeting Mr. McIntyre, before mentioned as line inspector, who is making his temporary headquarters at that city. Moreover, angry-looking storm-dogs have accompanied the sun on his anti-meridian march today, and such experience as mine at Lasgird has the effect of making one, if not weather-wise, at least weather, wary. In approaching Damgan, long before any other indications of the city appear, twin minarets are visible, soaring above the stony plain like a pair of huge pillars. These minars belong to the same mosque, and form a conspicuous landmark for travelers and pilgrims in approaching Damgan from any direction. At a distance they appear to rise up sheer from the barren plain, the town being situated in a depression. Six farsakhs from Damgan is the village of Tazaria, noted in the country round about for the enormous size of the carrots grown there. The minarets of Damgan and the extraordinary size of the Tazaria vegetables furnish the material for a characteristic little eastern story, current among the inhabitants. Finding that people came from far and near to see the graceful minarets of Damgan, and that nobody came to see Tazaria, the good people of that neglected village became envious, and they reasoned among themselves and said, Why should Damgan have two minarets and Tazaria none?
So they gathered together their packed donkeys, their ropes and ladders, and a large company of men, and reached Damgan in the silence and darkness of the night, intending to pull down and carry off one of the minarets and erect it in Tazaria. The ropes were fastened to the summit of the minar, but at the first great pull the brickwork gave way and the top of the tall minaret came tumbling down with a crash and clatter, killing several of its would-be removers. The Damgan people turned out, and after hearing the unhappy Tazarians' laments, some sarcastic citizen gave them a few carrot seeds, bidding them go home and sow them, and they could grow all the minarets they wanted. The carrots grew famously, and the villagers of Tazaria, instead of the promised minarets, found themselves in possession of a new and useful vegetable that fetched a good price in the Damgan bazaars. The Damganians, meeting a Tazarian riot, coming in with a donkey load of these huge carrots, cannot resist twitting him regarding the minars, but the now practical Tazarians no longer mourn the absence of minarets in their village, and when twitted about it reply, we have more minarets than you have, but our minarets grow downward and are good to eat. During the afternoon I passed many ruined villages and castles, said to have been destroyed by an earthquake many years ago. Some few natives find remunerative employment in excavating and washing over the dirt and debris of the ruined castles, in which they find coins, rubies, agates, turquoise, and women's ornaments. Sometimes they unearth skeletons with ornaments still attached. The sun shines out warm this afternoon, and its genial rays are sufficiently tempting to induce the jackals to emerge from their hiding places and bask in its beaming smiles on the sunny side of the ruins. Wherever there are ruins and skeletons and decay in eastern lands, and where are there not, there also is sure to be found the prowling and sneakish-looking jackal. Shelter and the usual rude accommodation, supplemented on this occasion by a wandering luti and his vicious-looking baboon, as also a company of riotous shavadars who insist on singing accompaniments to the luti's soul-harrowing tom-toming till after midnight, are obtained at the caravanserai of De Mola. From De Mola it is only a couple of farsacks to Sharud, and after the first three miles, which is slightly upgrade and not particularly smooth, it is downgrade, and very fair wheeling the remainder of the distance. The road forks a couple of miles from Sharud, and while I am entering by one road, Mr. McIntyre is leaving on horseback by the other to meet me, guessing, from word received from Damgan, that I must have spent the night at De Mola and would arrive at Sharud this morning. Only those who have experienced it know anything of the pleasure of two Europeans meeting and conversing in a country like Persia, where the habits and customs of the natives are so different, and to most travelers uncongenial, and only to be tolerated for a time. I have met Mr. McIntyre in Tehran, so we are not total strangers, which of course makes it still more agreeable. After the customary interchange of news and the discussion of refreshments, Mr. McIntyre hands me a telegram from Tehran, which bears a date several days old. It is from the British legation, notifying me that permission is refused to go through the Turcoman country. An appendage from the Chars d'Affaires suggests that I repair to Astrakhan and try the route through Siberia. 
and this, then, is the result of General Melnikoff's genial smiles and ready promises of assistance after providing myself with proper money and information for the Turkestan route. On the strength of the Russian minister's promises, I am overtaken, when, three hundred miles away, with a veto against which anything I might say or do would be of no avail. Sultan Ahmed Mirza, a son of Prince Anushirvan, is deputy governor of Sharud, responsible to his father, and ere I have arrived an hour, the usual request is sent round for a Tomasha, the word now used by people wanting to see me ride, and which really means an exhibition. His place is found in a brick courtyard with the usual central tank and the airy rooms of the building all opening upon it and once again comes a feeling of playing a rather ridiculous role as i circle awkwardly around the tank over very uneven bricks and around short corners where an upset would precipitate me into the tank amid i can't help thinking roars of laughter the prince is very lavish of his flowery persian compliments and says you english have now left nothing more to do but to bring the dead back to life in the courtyard my attention is called to a set of bastinado poles and loops, and Mr. McIntyre asks the prince if he hasn't a prisoner on hand, so that he can give us a tomasha in return for the one we are giving him. But it is now the Persian New Year, and the prisoners have all been liberated. Here, gentle reader, in Sharud, but it now behooves us to be dark and mysterious, and deal in hints and whispers, for the Persian proprieties must not be ruthlessly violated, and then as ruthlessly exposed, to satisfy the prying curiosity of far-off Frangistan that would never do. Behold, then, Mr. McIntyre absent, behold all male humans absent, save myself, and a couple of sable eunuchs, whose smooth, whiskerless faces betray inward amusement at the extreme novelty of the situation, and we all alone between the high brick walls that encircle the secrecy of an inner court, and yet not all alone, foretell it in whispers, some half-dozen shrouded female forms are clustered together in one corner. Yashmaks are drawn aside, and plump oval faces and bright eyes revealed, faces brown and soft of outline, eyes black, large and lustrous, with black lines skillfully drawn to make them look still larger, and lashes deeply stained to impart love and languor to their wondrous depths. Whisper it not in Grath, and tell it not in the streets of Frangistan that the wondrous Aspi Awan has proved an opera sesame capable of revealing to an inquisitive and all-observant Ferengi the collective charms of a Persian swell's harem. We can imagine these ladies in the seclusion of the Zenana hearing of the Ferengi and his wonderful iron horse, and, overwhelmed with feminine curiosity, with much coaxing and promising, obtaining reluctant consent for a strictly secret and decorous Tomasha, with covered faces, and no one present but the attendant eunuchs and the Ferengi, who, fortunately, will soon leave the country never to return. Mohammedan women are merely overgrown children, and the promise of strict decorousness is forbidden or ignored the moment the tomasha begins, and the fun and the wickedness of removing their yashmaks in the presence of a Ferengi is too rare an opportunity to be missed, and no doubt furnishes them with material for amusing conversation for many a day after. Rare fun, these ladies think, is to uncover their olive faces and let the Ferengi see their beauty. 
The eunuchs are generally indulgent to their charges whenever they can safely be so, and on this occasion they content themselves with looking on and saying nothing. After seeing me ride, the ladies cluster boldly around and examine the bicycle, chatting freely among themselves the while concerning its capabilities, but some of the younger ladies regard me with fully as much curiosity as the bicycle for never before did they have such an opportunity of scrutinizing a Ferengi. And now, while granted the privilege of this little revelation, we must be very careful not to reveal the secret of whose harem we have seen unveiled, and whose inner court our parent wheels have pressed, for the whirligig of time brings about strange things, and apparently trifling things that have been indiscreetly published by travelers in books at home have sometimes found their way back to the Far East and caused embarrassment and chagrin to people who treated them with hospitality and respect. End of Section 6 Recording by William Tomko.